welcome to the Movie Mouth Film and TV Podcast. We are back in the movie theatre this week. And boy, does it feel good to sit in a dark room with strangers and get hit by popcorn and not COVID particles. Yes, this week, as promised, we have a very special episode featuring a huge interview with US film director Paolo Pilardi, talking to us about his experiences working with Jeremy Piven, Bruce Dern, and many more on the set of his latest feature, The Last Call. And on top of all of that, we have a humongous review section featuring the fill your shorts horror of A Quiet Place Part 2, the make your shorts out of puppies with Disney's Cruella, and just when you wait years for a Snyder Cut, two of them turn up in a matter of months with Netflix's Army of the Dead. More of that later in this very episode. This is Miles, and as ever, I'm joined by a man. A bloody man who once told me, I've got a really great compliment for you, and it's true. Now, don't be pessimistic, Miles. It's not your style. Anyway, here goes. I've got this what ailment. Now, my doctor, the shrink, I used to go to him all the time, says that in 50 to 60% of cases, a pill really helps. I hate pills. Hate them. I'm using the word hate about pills. Anyway, my compliment to you is the night after you came over and you said that you would never, well, you were there. You know what you said. Anyway, the very next morning, I started taking the pills. And if you don't get how that's a compliment, you make me want to be a better man. It's, of course, (laughs) Phil. Hi. Oh, hi. How's he going? It's going really well. It's going really well. Did you ever, by the way, did you ever sing Always Look on the Bright Side uh, at your piano to a small dog that you were taking Mm. care of? I did, yeah. Always look on the bright (laughs) side of your life. I've done that on one occasion. More than one occasion I've done that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I nearly spat my beer everywhere then. Uh, no, I'm not drinking on the job. <laughs> it's water. I How am. are you, Phil? Um, I'm great. I'm great. I'm a bit tired, actually. It's been a long day. It's been a long day. What have you been doing today? I've been doing lots of boring things that I don't even want to talk about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not your mother, Phil. <laughs> you, you don't need to know, all right? Uh, I like, you know people guessing about what i've been doing no one knows what you've been doing where, where you are or what you've been doing you're like a you're like a bloody druid from stonehenge <laughs> that's right so speaking of which what have you been watching this week my dear well boy? um i've been a bit light on the watching things because i've been busy doing secret things what so you've got a life outside of the podcast that's what I i'm do, understanding yeah. that's what's oh. happening yeah um i finished I did finish that series I was telling you about, White Lines on Netflix, the yes. Ibiza drug uh, murder mystery odd. I found it really weird, to be honest. <laughs> it, it got it got insane. It got absolutely ridiculous. Did it really? Yeah. So it's one series, 10 episodes. I'm not sure. I, I hope they're not going to do any more. But it, I sort of enjoyed it. It had some good moments, but it also went just stupid in the last, like, two or three episodes. Um, but, you know, it was entertaining enough. It was, you know, it was well-performed <laughs> and everything, but it was just, yeah, it was just a bit, it was a bit crazy. 
Uh, what else did I do? I finished, uh, oh, uh, British TV we're talking about here. I don't, I don't know if you get it over there in the US, but you know about it. And we, I think we've talked about it. But um, finished series 11 of Taskmaster, the Channel 4 comedy uh, Oh, we're going program. actual TV, mainstream actual British TV. TV. Yeah, Goodness not even me. an, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was hilarious. One of the best things I've watched in ages. Always look forward to a new series of that. It's Greg Davis, right? Greg Davis, yep. Love him. Uh, and many other comedians. Alex Horn co-presents. But um, yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, that was great. And then just to finish off, you know, my my uh, <laughs> couple of weeks worth of viewing, I did watch the pilot episode of Due South. And I also oh. watched an episode of Murder, She Wrote as well. <laughs> Can we just? <laughs> Did you watch the pilot episode of Murder She Wrote? No, I watched the Did pilot you... of Juice South. Just a random, just a random, just murder a she wrote. random so Murder She Wrote. Can we sing the um, Juice South theme tune? No, Juice South. That's the way I'm going. Do South. Does he ever in anything else? I don't think so. Probably in Canada. Yeah. Big star in Canada. Massive. As big as his hat. Do you know what's sad? If we were due south, I'd be that weird like cop guy that's, that he hangs out with that like always yeah. lives in motels and wears like Hawaiian shirts and you'd be the Mountie. I would, like carrying like, <laughs> you know, a moose over my shoulder. He does that in the first episode. <laughs> Is that what you were actually doing today? You were carrying moose over your shoulder? I was. Shoulder. I didn't want to say, but I, I did go and find the moose and I wanted to carry it over my shoulder because I thought I was the Mountie <laughs> from due south. What else you got to do? I mean, it took me a while to find the moose in England. To be fair, <laughs> no, just a bunch of chocolate moose. It was just you and pots of little chocolate puddings over your shoulder, on my in shoulder, a, in a mounty outfit, saying, "I'm carrying moose. <laughs> I'm a Canadian, eh?" Yeah, um, that's that's not what I was doing, but still. What, well, yeah. what I have to say, what a very bizarre week or couple of weeks of of watching things that you've had there. I have. Um, <laughs> Was that it, or anything <laughs> else? It? A few episodes watched, of Neighbours. I watched the, the film, famous Australian but... soap. No, none of that. I did watch the okay. film that I was reviewing, <laughs> <laughs> which is a plus. Okay, that is definitely a plus. That is definitely yeah. a plus. Well, I'm happy that you watched something. Um, I've been plowing my way through Shit's Creek. Still really good though. Good little 20, 20 minute comedy. Love love it. Dry comedy. Brilliant. Um, I did a late night rewatch this weekend. We had Memorial Day weekend here in New York. Yeah. Um, in the US, which is a long weekend. We finally get a holiday, a bank holiday. And uh, I was, yeah, I would say, you know, having a good time for most of it. Um, and then at about 3 or 4 a.m. at some point, I decided to put on Spinal Tap, which I yes. couldn't find on any of the streaming platforms. And I decided to buy it on Amazon Prime Brilliant. in whatever frame of mind I was in. Yeah. But it was worth it. Um, Absolutely. And I turned up the volume to 11 and annoyed the shit out of my neighbors, which is always a good thing. Brilliant. Um, I also just started season three of The Kaminsky Method, starring Michael Douglas. This oh. is the Chuck Lorre uh, comedy that's been on Netflix. It's now in its third season. Um, traditionally starring Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin not returning to this season, which is kind of strange because he doesn't get written out of it in the second season. Um, and a really s- strange move for him to drop out because he was great in it. Um, I think it was his choice. Um, but I understand that he was busy writing a new memoir. But the, the right. kind of the kind of relationship between Alan Arkin and, and Michael Douglas is what's kind of kind of grounded this. But beyond all of this, can we talk about HBO Max's Friends The Reunion for a moment? Oh, yeah. Oh, I did watch that as well. I forgot about that. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, I did watch that, yeah. 
Did you did you think it was the most sycophantic dick pulling you've ever seen this side of a James Corden carpool karaoke episode? Um, pretty much, yeah. I didn't expect anything less, to be honest. No, I mean, but I mean, to make matters worse, he then turns up and he's the one hosting the fucking thing, gushing you his praise you're not a fan all of him, over the. I, I can't stand him. He uh, just, I am. He, a he fan. loves. I quite like him. He loves everything about everybody he talks to, and there is never any job. depth to any of it. No, it's, it's his not. Job. No, he's not. It's not. Um, I just, yeah, with this like heavily Botoxed or I don't even know, were they CGI'd cast members who appear? Oh, God. They, thankfully, I, they, think, I guess yeah. they, they were just off their, their meds enough that they could recall one or two stories. Matt LeBlanc, I think, is the, the only one that probably comes out of it with a semblance of interest and clearly enjoyed his time on the show and no, seems I think to remember Lisa a lot of the stories. Well. Huh? Lisa Kudrow as well was pretty... Uh... Yeah, but she just kind of seemed like, eh, whatever. Whereas, whereas Matt LeBlanc was like, oh, do you remember when you did this? Do you remember that? Do you remember yeah, this? Yeah, he was loving going, it, wasn't he? he was they were going, no, I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember that. Um, the rest of them kind of just sat there dead-eyed with their foreheads <laughs> tight enough to bounce a dime off of before the right. CGI budget runs out. And yeah. Joey Chandler, Ross, Rachel, Phoebe, and Monica turn into a blubbering mess of human flesh and nostalgic cuddles and hugs at the audience. As they look on, wishing that this was a cure for world hunger, but instead it's just a bunch of millionaires who peaked and want to remember how good they once were and how lucky we were to have them. Oh, God, yeah. Also, Matthew Perry's teeth were amazingly white. <laughs> well. They hurt my no, eyes. No, no no comment on that, but I'm, I'm not sure they were his own. No. Um, but that was that, wasn't it? Yeah. We were on a break! <laughs> Let's jump in the news, shall we, Phil? Um, I'll get us kicked off. Some Got big it. news coming out of Studio Land, New York, yes. Hollywood there. Amazon has bought the legendary 97-year-old studio, MGM, a.k.a. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, mm. for a grand sum of $8.45 billion US. Um, it's been brewing for a little while, but they basically made this uh, this announcement official in the last week. And it means that now many of the huge kind of franchises that are that are currently you know produced owned by MGM, such as James Bond, Bond, and yeah. Rocky, and the the uh, the Creed movies, are now sitting under the the Amazon studio. Mm. A lot of questions around this. Um, you know, kind of similar to how Disney incorporated 20th Century Fox and turned them into 20th Century Studios whether they continue to run them autonomously or in semi-autonomously for the time being uh, is yet to be seen. Um, but of course, you know, we're looking forward to seeing, you know, certainly the Bond movie being released in cinemas and they have confirmed that the new Bond movie, No Time to Die, will at some point be released in movie theatres, which is where I think we all want to see that. Yeah. Um, but we'll see in time. I think it does, it's a big move for Amazon who... Looking at HBO at the time with HBO, you've got CBS, um, All Access, which tied in with Paramount. Um, I think Amazon really needed to bring in some old classic content and secure that content, ring fence it. So obviously mm. you think of all the MGM, classic kind of MGM movies that they've had over the years, you know, you're talking about, you know, Robocop, The Pink Panther, Science of the Lambs, all that stuff. That's all now going to be under the, the Amazon Studios ownership. So, I mean, you know, less competitive market, um, more ways to watch things. Um, hopefully it's a good thing. Yeah. As long as, for me, they just keep, you know, putting things into cinemas so that we can go and have that experience, uh, I'll be I'll be happy. But wait and see. Watch this we space. We shall wait and see. 
Borderlands. Oh. Did you ever play the cell shaded video game franchise Borderlands, Phil? I did. I played the first one a bit. Hmm. Um, got a couple of friends who are massively into that gaming series. Well, I bring you news that Hostel director Eli Roth is dragging it, kicking and screaming to the big screen, starring Kate Blanchett. Right. Or is that Cot Blanche? And many more. <laughs> and this this has got uh, Craig Mazin on script duty. The story for the film finds Blanchett's character, an infamous outlaw with a mysterious past, reluctantly returning to her home planet of Pandora? Isn't that Avatar? Uh, um, to, to find the missing daughter of the universe's most powerful son of a bitch, Atlas, played by our friend Edgar Ramirez from the last days of American crime. <laughs> Lilith forms an alliance with an unexpected team headed up by Roland with Kevin Hart. Oh, yeah. A former elite mercenary now desperate for redemption. Tiny Tina, played by Ariana Greenblatt, a feral preteen uh, demolitionist. Krieg, played by Florian Montanu, Tina's muscle-bound, who's Tina's muscle-bound, rhetorically challenged protector. Tannis, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, oh. the scientist with a tenuous grip on sanity. And Claptrap, played by Jack Black, a persistently wise-ass robot. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so production's on the, underway on this one. Not sure what the release date will be or when, but it's looking like late 2022 when it will be released and it sounds like it's going to be in cinemas that sounds cool mm. be up for that I like a bit of Eli Roth yeah Did I wonder, I wonder how it? they'll do it visually though I wonder if they'll do it like sort of like in that sort of cell shaded it's style. interesting you do say that cool so, with it like scanner so, darkly or something yeah so he, so Jamie Lee Curtis just posted a picture the first look picture of Kate Blanchett and it was black and white and she was in silhouette so you couldn't see Right. All you could see was the outline of the character. So I think visually it could be in line with that cell shaded type approach, like a scanner darkly. And did you just yeah. say a scanner darkly? Yeah. I mean, um, also like that, um, I can't remember what the series was, the mini series that was on Netflix that was like cell shaded stuff. The, the World War II series. World War II one. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, similar, similar sort of just, thing. Just scream it out in the middle of the interview. Yeah. Or something. We'll, we'll remember it that way. Um, <laughs> But no, so so that could be interesting. I love Eli Roth. I, I one of my favorite Eli Roth films. For those of you that haven't seen it, and a lot of people haven't, is Knock Knock, starring Keanu Reeves. If you haven't seen that film, go and watch it. Knock Knock, Keanu Reeves, and send me a message or something on Instagram, or just let me know what you think of it because it is fucking mental and bizarre and not the best movie, but it's a lot of fun. Knock I Knock. Seen that. I really want to say who's there. Who? But you just there? went knock knock Keanu Reeves. It's like what a rubbish joke. Knock knock who's there? Reeves. Reeves who? Keanu who? Keanu. Reeves. Keanu who? Oh, stop it. <laughs> stop it. I'm gonna we'll work on news. that. We'll work on the material. Right. Let me give you some news. This is exciting. You'll like this. You've probably heard of it already. But <laughs> Henry Wait Cavill. It up. Henry Cavill is to star in Lion Gate uh, Lion's Gates. Highlander reboot. Uh, I mean, awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, we recently featured Highlander on a video store corner, didn't we? Lots Sadly, of fun we did, yes. You... What? You loved it. Shut up. <laughs> 
So in the world of Highlander films, there can be only one, and Henry Cavill has his eyes on the title. Um, sources tell Deadline that the Man of Steel star is in talks for one of the lead roles in Lionsgate's reboot of Highlander with John Wick director Chad Stahelski uh, helming. Interesting. Yeah. This is a TV series. I, well, um, it doesn't say, actually. Um, I don't know if it's going to be... No, I think it's a film. I think it's a film uh, re- like boot. Cool. Reboot. Um, so, yeah, it looks really cool. Um, who knows how, you know, what they'll do with it. I mean, obviously there was other Highlander films other than the one that weren't so good. And I think the television the series did okay. Uh, it was like sort of popular, but I never saw any of it. Uh, but, you know, it's been, I think it's been on the cards for a while. I think um, people like um, Ryan Reynolds had been mm-hmm. involved at one point, mm-hmm. Justin Lin. Uh, but yeah, it's apparently getting ready to get into production. So that's exciting because, yeah, Henry Cavill put it on his um, Twitter, oh, I think, the other day. That's well. good because he did the same with The Witcher, didn't he? He was very excited about that when he got... Yeah. Cast yeah. and help bring that to the. He's, I mean, Henry Cavill, by his own admission, is a great big fucking nerd. He absolutely yeah, he's like, loves he's this like mythology, swords and sorcery. He's a big D and D player. Yeah, massive. he's a he's a big witch. He loves the Witcher. I mean, like, what a he life! Is, he gets to play the characters that he nerds out <laughs> yeah. over. He's like, oh yeah, I really love Superman. Oh, I'll just be Superman in all the Hollywood films. Yeah, brilliant. And why not? Why not? I would if I could. But I'm not Henry Cavill. <laughs> you could definitely be like his, like, you know. Don't say I'll be the like his sidekick that sits in the van, like telling him what to do. What in the in the high in Highlander? Oh, in Highlander, would he have a van? Uh, the Highlander van. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His his, uh, his horn is. I'll take the high road and you'll take the low. <laughs> Do you know what's really weird? I think I might, I've just, I've just clicked this. I was driving home today. Uh, in your van? In the countryside, in my van, in my new van. <laughs> and um, I was driving home along the countryside. And on a road where there's no pedestrian path, there's just like this weird grass uh, thing. It's like in the middle of the countryside. Mm-hmm. There was a guy walking along with, uh, holding bagpipes. So maybe <laughs> he was a highlander. <laughs> Do you live in Scotland? Nope, I live nowhere near Scotland. I live like the the polar opposite of Scotland in the country. So that's that was odd. I mean, even in Scotland, surely you don't see that. What many was he wearing? Walking, like normal clothes, just like Maybe it was Henry Cavill. It, it, they were filming. He's got his, he was just like. doing some promo shots for Twitter. <laughs> stood out in stood out in the stinging nettles of of southern England with, yeah. with some bagpipes instead Brilliant. of a sword. I wish that was true. There can be only one. There can be only one. Looking forward to that. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, what else you got? I, I got, well, sad news. Sad news. Learned uh, this week that um, Charles Grodin passed away, who we featured in when we watched uh, Midnight Run, the classic comedy yep. uh, in a video store corner in the 1988 Midnight Run. Yeah. Uh, as well, you know, he's starred in lots of other things. He was, you know, I sort of grew up with him, seeing him in the, the Beethoven movies and stuff. Yeah, he's done same. a lot. He's done a lot of things. But yeah. And, you know, I think he, he was in his late 80s. So he, he's done pretty well. I didn't realize he was, he was 
getting on that 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 like old 88 but, or something wasn't he yeah, yeah that's right yes but you know sad because he's a very good actor a very good funny actor uh, and especially enjoyed his performance in midnight run as well brilliant a film that neither yeah. of us had seen neither when of we us watched seen, it for the podcast 100 percent added it to my like favorite comedies Rot- list your rotation for sure yeah definitely yeah so yeah that is sad but you know he did a lot for the industry, so that's good. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely remember him from Beethoven. He was the dad, wasn't he? As you said in he, Beethoven. Yeah, um, kind of getting pissed off with the dog running around the house. <laughs> that basically. damn dog! It's crazy. I can't believe he's that old, though. It's, it's mm. crazy how so many actors that we grew up with are really, you know, really old. I mean, just look at Chevy Chase now. Yeah, I know. You know how old he is. You know. Yeah. It's uh, we're getting to that point where sadly many of these kind of legends are passing on. But um, yeah. Very sad news. But do check out Midnight Run if you didn't listen to our spoiler special uh, video store corner section on Midnight Run, then go check out the movie and dial into that. Uh, I think it was episode maybe four or five, something like that. Go back and listen to it because that was that movie was a lot of fun and Charles Grodin was brilliant in it. Definitely. As the Duke. The Duke, yeah. <laughs> so that's that. That's all the news I have. Alrighty. So that was the movie news. Let's jump into the trailers. Phil, do you want to get us started off? Yes. Yes, I do. So the first one is Lansky. You heard of this? I haven't. No. Well, this is... um, What is it? (laughs) Well, this is starring Harvey Keitel and Sam Worthington, who I don't think I've seen anything for ages. Mm. Um, But it's based on a true story. Wolf. And the Avatar. And the Avatar, or the Terminator. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> not that Terminator, no. Um, so yeah, based on a true story, uh, when aging Mayor Lansky is investigated one last time by the Fed, who suspected he had stashed mi- away millions of dollars uh, over half a century, the retired gangster spins a dizzying tale revealing the untold truth about his life as the notorious boss of Murder Incorporated and the National mm. Crime Syndicate. So mm. it looks really cool. It looks like a, you know, a gritty sort of gangster drama, lots of flashbacks, but, you know, with modern day interview. Um, so, yeah, keeping an eye out for this one. Looks like it could be really cool. It does um, sound cool. Who's 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 directing? Who's directing? That one? Uh, it's uh, A-10 Rockaway. I don't think he's done too much before. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it does look looks really good. So I'm quite looking forward to that one. Okay. Um, do you want to go, or shall I go for my next one? Go for it. You go for it. You f- you just flowing. I'm flowing. I love it. I'm in. I'm sh- you know. I'm in. I'm in the zone. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying it, but you look so tired, and I love that. <laughs> I'm in the zone. A um, for effort. <laughs> M for melatonin. All right. <laughs> the Tomorrow War. Uh, Chris Pratt and KJ uh, Simmons. Um, JK Simmons. J- J- KJ. Yeah. <laughs> KJ Simmons and JK, JK Simmons. Rowling. JK oh, Rowling and, and KJ Simmons. Um, I'm like Ron Burgundy. You know that. Like anything that's on the teleprompter, I'll read it. <laughs> So did you write KJ Simmons? I've written your KJ, thing? yeah. I was just in the flow. <laughs> Me in the zone. And KG. I'm out of the zone now. Um, Tenacious D. <laughs> <laughs> Featuring JK Simmons. 
<laughs> so this are, is, am I rushing or dragging? Sorry, go for it. <laughs> this is an Amazon original, mm. um, and I'll, I'll set I'll set the scene for you. Uh, have you have you seen the trailer for this? I have. You have. Oh, okay. So I'll tell everyone else. Uh, the fate of a futuristic war rests upon one man's abilities to confront the ghosts of his past. Uh, 30 years in the future, humanity is losing to an alien invasion. Uh, so to fight back, scientists develop a way to draft soldiers from the past, our present, to fight the war. Um, so I think it looks like a really cool premise, like draft soldiers to go to the future to fight for the country that's in peril, like however far down the line it is. So so like, the, so like humanity has been wiped, almost wiped out, so they have to bring people from now into the future to fight against whatever it is and bring them all up to speed on what they're actually got to do. Yeah. So here's a technology, go do this, you need to do yeah. that. X, yeah. X and y. Okay. And they, you know, they give them the equipment and futuristic guns and stuff like that and then mm -hmm. like, say, away, off you go. If mm -hmm. you come back, then you can go back to the past again. <laughs> do you think they don't? I bet, I bet they don't. I bet they go, the kicker is... Is that we can't actually get you back now? You're fucked. Yeah, you're yeah. Here you come here and you're fighting, but you can't go back. Sorry about that. Thanks, man. I mean, I, there's some in the trailer. There's some. There's some pretty cool looking um, action. Um, yeah. Some big, you know, sort of big budget looking CGI and just some, yeah, some, some pretty cool stuff. And Chris, I like Chris Pratt in a lot of stuff. This is like mm. a good role for him, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just like the premise. I think more than anything, sounds a bit different. Yeah, it's a bit. Um, it reminded the trailer reminded me a little bit of Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit like that. I mean, you know, time travel and time loops, fu time future travel. war, and all that stuff. But yeah, it just yeah, I, I'd definitely be interested to see it. It's good to see Amazon like putting money behind stuff like this. And I agree. Well, I think well, we love a bit um, of sci-fi, don't we? We love a bit yeah, of sci-fi. Any sci-fi, any new sci-fi is good sci-fi for me. Just as long as they're doing stuff, because a lot of a lot of sci-fi stuff now, because it doesn't make a lot of money back, it kind of gets overlooked. I think. Yeah. But obviously, Amazon pumping money into this is a good thing. I don't know if it's going to get a theatrical run though. It looks like the kind of thing I don't really, I wouldn't really want to watch on I my. I think sofa. it was meant to, but because of I think it was ready a little while ago, but because of COVID, they've put it onto Amazon Prime. But I right. thought it was meant to get a. I think I read somewhere that it was meant to get a uh, a theatrical release. Right. But then, uh, yeah. So. Also, I read, I believe. Also, I read. Also okay. Read. And when yeah. does this come out? That comes out on July 2nd. Ooh. Yeah. So, not, not so we shall be talking about that in a month. In one month. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Indeed. <laughs> what trailers did you see? I saw so the I saw these actually in the cinema. Um I got I went to see um A Quiet Place Part Two. So every trailer was kind of horror horror themed. Oh yeah. Um but the the first one was the awesome trailer for Edgar Wright's new movie. Edgar Wright, director of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, uh Baby Driver, etc. etc. Here um directing what it looks like a straight up kind of horror thriller right. um, called The Last Night in Soho. This is starring uh, Matt Smith, um, a, a new kind of breakthrough Kiwi actress called Tom Thomasin McKenzie and lady of the moment, Queen's Gambit herself, Anya Taylor-Joy. Right. It's really stylish looking, lots of neon, very Hitchcockian. Um, it's set in present day Soho, London, 
but then kind of flips back to a kind of 1960s London with what appears to be Anya Taylor-Joy haunting Thomas and Mackenzie, who appears to be the, the, the female lead of this movie. Right. Um, and there's like cool scenes with like things bursting through walls and things like that. Um, definitely not a comedy. Um, there's even a really weird thing that made a few people in the cinema laugh at the end of the trailer where Thomas and Mackenzie is screaming, kind of screaming at the camera, and then it freezes and you see like a very Hitchcockian like gra- glass crack come down and kind of turn into like a scythe of glass and kind of remove her eye. Like a oh, very right. visual, weird visual yeah. kind of thing that he's done. It looks very Hitchcockian, obviously going after that kind of, you know, that kind of period. Yeah. That looks really interesting. Mm. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to that. The second one I saw, not so interesting, but this is the next installment in the Purge series. This one called The Forever Purge. Uh. And I actually quite liked the first couple Purge. Seven. Movies? The first seven? <laughs> no, no. The first couple I quite liked. I liked the premise. They obviously yeah. found, you know, got found something. Um, I would say that the purge in this day and age, you know, uh, the world shuts down and people roaming the street, uh, who are roaming the streets get killed, kind of does feel a little bit too close to home after the pandemic. And I was kind of watching <laughs> this thinking, it's too much. Um, yeah. But this sees the purge has ended and it sees a band of civilians who get caught up in a group of terrorists who decide the purge isn't over and they themselves are going to conduct their own purge no. as and when the hell they, they want. That's unfortunate. Yeah. This is starring Josh Lucas and Anna de la Ruggera, who you'll remember from the loud police siren that you can hear behind me. Oh, I can. They're after you. It's the purge. <laughs> <laughs> Run, Miles. Get on a plane. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm just jumping oh, out the window. They're to coming to get this, you to escape this threat. Um, but there you go. Carry on, it's ambient. <laughs> it's going to wake a few people up, isn't it? <laughs> um, but you'll you'll remember Anna de la Ruggera from Army of the Dead. This week's Army of the Dead review, the Zack Snyder movie. She was um, indeed. She was in the very um, and forgive the pun, head turning role as Maria Cruz. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this comes out July 4th weekend, July 4th weekend in the USA and the rest of the world and is going to be in cinemas and video on demand. Cool. All righty. Well, very good stuff. So last week we promised as we hit our 25th episode and amazingly had our biggest ever launch day for an episode. So thank you all very much to our listeners for tuning in, downloading, streaming, whatever you did, however you did it, you did it, and we loved it. Thank you very much. We promised off the back of that that we'd be providing some fun, um, something new for this episode. We actually have an incredible interview coming up, and uh, we have an emerging talent. He's a a really talented director who started out in the live performance and theatre world before emerging this year with The Last Call, starring Jeremy Piven. Um, This is a movie that sees Mick, played by Jeremy Piven, as a local success story and a real estate developer. He returns home to his blue-collar neighborhood in Philadelphia for a funeral and is obligated to stay to ensure his parents' ailing family business gets back on course. In the meantime, he starts to grow closer to his childhood crush, Ali, played by Taryn Manning, 
whilst enduring constant ridicule from his old hometown crew, featuring the likes of uh, Zach McGowan, Jack McGee, Kathy Moriarty from Raging Bull, Jamie Kennedy, and none other than Bruce fucking Dern. Um, had an ama- has an amazing cast. Um, as Mick begins to reconnect with the neighbourhood, he finds himself at a crossroads when forced to either raise or resurrect the family bar. Phil and I sat down with director Paolo Pilardi, who gave us a very generous hour of his time, even delaying his lunch, no less. And we do hope you enjoy. Hey, Paolo, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us, guys. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, Phil and I uh, very much enjoyed The Last Call, which is uh, the new movie uh, that's been released this year. Um, I, I have to start get started off by saying that I wanted to drink so much beer and whiskey consistently <laughs> throughout this movie. And if it wasn't for the fact that we were interviewing you today, we definitely, definitely would have got extremely drunk. Um, <laughs> you, you dedicated this film to all the buckets in all the towns. What was your particular bucket or bar growing up that you uh, so fondly remember? Man, that's such a great question uh, right out of the gate um, because there's at different stages. You have different places, you know, but um, from the earliest days and growing up and as it relates to Last Call, um, I grew up in Overbrook in a section of West Philadelphia, not too far from Will Smith and very close to Upper Darby, which is where we shot uh, or where it was a setting for Darby Heights and uh, predominantly Italian-American neighborhood. And so there was... Uh, the Overbrook Club was an Italian-American club and kind of think like old Frank Sinatra, huge 500-person um, dining room, but this big bar upstairs, downstairs. Yeah. Anyway, my dad would go there. It was his place to kind of go and have a few beers and whatever. And I grew up in a neighborhood that had corner bars, but everyone went to the Overbrook Club. And, um, you know, you would go to dine, you would go to play bocce, you would go to drink and and my earliest memories were always there. And so as a non, you know, as a child, I'm talking about. And uh, there was a guy that would come in, old guy. His name was Pappy. And to me, he was like 150 years old. And he would get pints, like a, a you know, a mug, chilled mug filled with wine. And three, <laughs> three sips down the hatch and walk out. That's all he would do. He'd come in, do that, and leave. And every time my dad was there, he was there. And, you know, in the daytime, I'm talking. And, uh you know, there'd be like three guys hanging out, playing Scopa, playing cards and stuff. And, and, uh, yeah, we just, we had to run to the roost in that place. And it was just like, you know, a lot of, um, I think about how important, um, pub culture, but just the social aspect of, um, meeting places, whether it's a cafe or a pub or, you know, um, just getting together on, like we do in Philly on stoop with friends is, um, how much, people really didn't get to do that over the last, you know, 14 months. Yeah. And so, um, you know, as, as it turns, you know, with last call, it wound up being like a real, um, a real ode, I think, you know, but, but, uh, everyone has their place, you know? So, uh, but anyway, that's my earliest one. And then there's one of course around the corner, uh, the new wave cafe, another shout out to, to a Philly institution that I got to go to for the first time last Friday to meet with a, a few friends about my next project. And, uh, it was the first time I saw this bartender and, and guys I've known he's, he's an owner operator, uh, in over a year. And it was, it was quite emotional, really. It really was. And, uh, we still couldn't sit inside, you know, we're just kind of still outside and, but just to kind of see people, you know, it's a real, uh, 
people were literally crying, which is, you know, it's, it just shows how important that, that communal aspect, how, how as humans we need to, we need that interaction. Definitely. Yeah. Amen to that, Paolo. Absolutely. Um, we're going to come back to that point actually, but you've, you've made with the last call, what, what feels like an incredibly personal movie um, about a returning son, you know, who, you know, has experienced his own levels of success, of course, played by Entourage's Ari Gold himself, Jeremy Piven. Um, He's initially shunned by his family and friends for turning his back on the community and and making, you know, something of himself. Where did the inspiration for this film come from? And how did you and co-writer, producer Greg Lingo write such an authentic dialogue and set pieces? Um, well, thank you for those kind words. It is, I, you know, I think all films, they ought to be personal, uh, from the filmmaker's perspective, from the director's perspective, you have got to find an honest place to tell your story. And, um, you know, for me, this is the first project I came to that Greg had written a first draft and Greg doesn't come from a film world, but the first draft I read, you know, it needed work like all scripts do. But there was an authenticity to it uh, that I that I connected with. I knew that world. Now, Greg grew up in Upper Darby, which Overbrook, I was mentioning earlier, and Upper Darby are separated. They're, he's That's on the other side of the city limit, separated by Cobbs Creek and a famous golf course. And uh, But it's basically Irish-American. It's, it's, they're both immigrant enclaves, lower middle class, working class um, neighborhoods. And... Uh, you know, mine predominantly Italian and African American and Jewish American, and and up there in Upper Darby, it was Irish and uh, Asian American. Anyway, it was you know it was a similar upbringing, so we had an easy um, rapport from day one. Even though he didn't come from a storytelling world at all, you know, he's in uh, primarily in real estate, and um, and so. You know, for me, that I, what I thought would be, you know, maybe a real struggle, I was able to find a commonality um, in keeping it kind of real all the time. Like I immediately got what he was trying to do, what he wanted to do with it. Um, and one of the first things he had said to me was that, you know, we had talked about a comedy or a drama and I had seen it more as a drama. And um, and we kind of settled on this comedy. The first time I met him, he said, I would like a comedy with a heart. And that always stuck with me. And um, it's something I try to bring to to really all the projects I do is is really kind of get you in the gut with the heart, you know. And and mm-hmm. interestingly, with this project, you know, I I don't typically do comedy, although I do think I can I can naturally put people at ease and and make people laugh. But comedy and feature films are it's a totally different beast. And and uh, you know, we talked about you know this type of unapologetic slice of life, raw, crude comedy, marrying that with, you know, really sweet kind of tender scenes. Is that a bridge too far or not? But I was really interested in kind of exploring that and exploring it through a slice of life that didn't have this like rigid plot that was so, you know, so thick, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's the origins though. It, it, it reminded me in that in that regard of um, some of the early works of Wes Anderson with Bottle Rocket and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Doug Lyman with Swingers. It has that easy flowing and and its own kind of authentic comedy and beats mm-hmm. internal mm-hmm. jokes around the area and the location and these running yeah. gags 
which yeah. which I which I absolutely loved. Yeah, Definitely. I appreciate that. I mean, that's certainly high praise, and and um, I think um, m- most filmmakers, again, getting back to that honesty, like for me as a human, as a person, I I pride myself on being very authentic, and I'm a genuine dude. Um, we do a lot as independent filmmakers, selling ourselves, sell, pitching our projects. Um, and some people don't, you know, sound like used car salesmen. Right. And, um, I've, you know, I don't think I have ever any, any worry about that for me ever because I'm not that guy. So I'll tell it to you straight. And so, uh, there's an, and that's from my upbringing. That's, I grew up in a world similar to, to last call, you know, um, maybe not quite filled, you know, obviously not as ridiculous, but, but, you know, uh, so, so for me, it was kind of easy, but I think with every project, man, like if you don't, if the filmmaker doesn't bring, um, doesn't tell that story in an honest way or can't, then they shouldn't do it because it will end up ultimately in your final cut. Um, and you know, look, last call has its warts. It's a low budget indie, mm-hmm. um, like most, like most indie films do, you know, but I do think it's hard is in the right place. And I think pe- if people are, um, if people, you know, if people, um, get it from the beginning, you know, the kind of comedy it is, then they're along for the ride. And then everything else kind of fades away and, you know, see it for what it is. If you're going to, you know, it's not a drama, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, you know, kind of, I don't say loosely constructed romp, but it was really important to, <clears throat> you guys know with pub culture, especially, um, but guys who have known each other for years and years and decades, um, this talking over each other and all of that kind of stuff. Like I, re- it was really important for us visually and with the dialogue to feel like we were plopping the audience directly into Callahan's pub or onto yeah. the street, you know, and that you were a part of the neighborhood. Uh, to me, that was, that was most important really, yeah. as opposed to kind of, you know, you know, yeah, we have this gentrification plot line but you know it's a little thin i think that i think that brings it onto the point actually that you know i was going to make that you know we talked about the the situation with covid and the pandemic and um you know we've seen lockdowns easing everywhere which has been great you know here in the uk we've been allowed back in pubs from the the, uh, the monday it was the first day we could go back in pubs for the first time in, a, in quite a long time and you know i think we both found it while watching it that that is, it was really heartwarming to see, you know, the scenes of friends just getting together, having a really good time, you know, getting absolutely, absolutely wasted (laughs) in style as well. And, um, you know, just generally raising hell together. So it was, it was really good to see that kind of thing. And I think, as you said, you know, you've tried to purvey that in what you've shown in the film and it really did feel like, you know, I could have like walked into that pub, and I could have been standing in the corner having a drink and just watching those guys. Like, you know, I've, I've got groups of friends that are just as crazy as that, you know, that yeah. you're just yeah. like observing another night out with, with your mates, you know. So Phil, I think, you wouldn't have been in the corner. You would have been on the floor of the it's bar. It's true. Yeah, pretty would, sure. yeah. <laughs> that much alcohol. <laughs> Definitely. But, yeah. you know, so with regards to that, I think, you know, you've assembled a, a really impressive um, ensemble cast for this for this picture. And um, as we said before, the lead... Um, it's taken by the aforementioned Jeremy Piven. Um, how much of um, a collaborator was he in helping to sort of get, get the movie greenlit? And how did you manage to bring together 
such incredible actors because you know there's such a varied ensemble cast in this and you know in supporting roles as well so how did you how did you go about that you know it's a that's another great question and the perfect opportunity to give a shout out to my producers um specifically dj dodd um and rob simmons who um kind of took on the bulk of the casting and then also ante novakovic we cast this film from the time it was greenlit to the time we shot was about six weeks. Wow. And we cast a film inside about four weeks and without a casting director. And um, it just kind of the way this project worked out, we wound up, I think ultimately we were greenlit. Um, you know, Greg, Greg is the executive producer. And so he was financing the film almost exclusively, I believe. And it was at a certain budget. And this is pre-talent. And I had said for years, I had said to Greg, listen, this kind of film, like I want the authenticity. I want local Philly, New York actors. And I don't, you know, we don't have the money for names and it's going to be whatever. We're going to cast it regionally and that's going to be great. And he was on board with that. And, um, you know, as you know, it's a large cast just size wise. So a quick rundown, Rob, my one producer had said, you know, what do you think about Tyron Manning? in the role as Allie, she, I worked with her on a pro- previous project mm-hmm. and, you know, I had loved Taryn from Orange is New Black and from, you know, um, Hustle and Flow and, yep. you know, yeah. whatever. And, and I, and I really was intrigued and I love when, when actors get to play against type, she consistently, she seems like she gets cast a lot as, as the bad girl. And so I liked her being the sweet girl and, um, you know, she read it, she loved it and she got on board and, and that, I mean, I can't thank her enough because that was that was a game changer. Uh, from there, uh, DJ had worked with Bruce Dern on a previous project a few years back, and he he um, you know he kind of came on board in short order. And now it's like, oh shit, you have a two time Oscar nominee, you know? And he's like, and he was in love with it, like in love with it, in love with the Hangover for adults, and I could you know just and and. Taryn's manager recommended Jeremy to us. He quite honestly, it wasn't on my radar. I didn't, I never thought we could even, we would be in that sphere. Um, but it, but it, it, it's goes to show, especially for, uh, you know, potentially other indie filmmakers listening that, um, you build your team out, you trust your team and you kind of like, look as, as indie writer directors, especially, um, our currency, our, our leverage, if we have any is in the script, it's in the story. You know, actors, the real ones, they want to eat. They want to eat your story. They want to eat your food, you know, and that's, we have the food. Um, we don't have the money, you know, so, so, but we have the food. And I think um, you just never know. And I mean, just people kept saying, and then anyway, once Jeremy got on board, it snowballed, you know, and then people, uh, Greg had, Greg had grown up with Jamie Kennedy and Jamie had knew about the project. And, and so, you know, he, you know, kind of came on and then it became a thing. Well, Oh shit! Like I want to get involved with this project because this cast is building out. Kathy Moriarty, you know, Jack McGee, Sherry O'Terry. It just became this like way beyond my wildest dreams. Way beyond my wildest dreams. Yeah. Um, to answer your point though, quickly about the collaboration, um, because we cast so close to filming, uh, it, our schedule didn't allow for rehearsal, which for me is crazy because I love to rehearse. And especially a story where these guys have known each other their whole lives. Yeah. I, you know, I was, I was really concerned about, you know, this, would the camaraderie be there? Um, but to the point that 
you know, filmmaking is 90% casting. These guys are such pros. I, I met Jeremy day one, shook his hand back when you could still shake hands. And, and he was like, um, you know, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. We had talked a little bit, of course, but, but, um, and we had to get into the scene where he comes to grips with his mom dying and he's been a dick because he hasn't seen her in 10 years. It was a pretty heady scene to start out with. And he just, you know, crushed it in a few takes. And, and I was like, all right, like this dude, you know, he's a red light player. And, um, he helped me set its tone very early that we weren't fucking around. And, um, and he's a gamer. Like he comes from the theater world. So like he's all of, he's one of those guys that raises the level of play of everyone else. So to your point of collaboration, and I'm a, I'm a very big collaborator across the board with key personnel, with, with, with actors, especially. Um, and so I want their input because from a psychological perspective, the more leash I give you, the more you're going to give me when you, when yeah. you take full ownership of a role, you know, it's, it's, it's a director's dream. So, yeah. um, they were very willing participants, um, across the board, especially as with improv and just kind of, and having fun with it. And it was a fun kind of script to have fun with, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's I think that's a really interesting point, and and you know you mentioned you know Derby Heights being based kind of loosely or not so loosely on on Upper Derby, Pennsylvania. Yeah. The place that you depicted here, the town that you depicted, feel like a real lived-in location, um, and it's 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 actually incredible to hear that there were no rehearsals because, as you say, the camaraderie, the chemistry within the cast was there to be seen. And even when the credits rolled, I kind of find it surprising. And now you're saying that there was, there was like zero time to rehearse and it was cast very quick to, to production, um, that these guys weren't all friends or didn't all grow up together, you know? Yeah. I know you yeah. obviously, you know, you have the likes of, of Jamie Kennedy, who you mentioned is a, an Upper Derby, Derby native. Right. Um, but I felt like a lot of this was in, in part to the, as we mentioned before, very, very realistic dialogue, authentic dialogue. But what, what I wanted to know is how much of that was on the page and how much of that was ad-libbed by the cast on the day or on, on set? Uh, yeah, so, I, you know, that's another great point. I think one of the strengths of this script uh, was never going to be the plot, you know, because it wasn't that type of story. It was a slice of, it was intentionally a slice of life. So it was, it was trying to have cracking dialogue, you know, just trying to have it crack and, and, and that, especially people stepping on top of each other and really just kind of just this bombardment of, of barbs in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say about the the, 65% of it was probably on the page. I would say Mm -hmm. when you have players, especially with like legendary comedic chops, Bruce Durham uh, and Jeremy, who's so quick on his feet. Taryn has great comedic chops Mm -hmm. with orange and new black. Obviously, Jamie Kennedy, Sherry Terry, but and even Zach McGowan and those guys can kind of just like get on it, you know. Um, once you lather them up, once you wind them up, man, it's like I, I don't care what's on the page. You know, I learned a long time ago to as a writer, which is my first love. I wrote poetry, I wrote you know screenplays, whatever. I love words, um, and I love talking, as you as you're hearing now, you know, and storytelling. But but you have to learn as a filmmaker that that's not the end game, you know. So so. It's don't get so fucking precious. Like, okay, if there's a certain bit that has to get out there to move the story forward, fine. Um, But otherwise, look, this is where we're trying to, this is where we need to get to by the end of the scene. Like, I don't really give a fuck about the word. And I would say that to him all the time. 
I don't give a fuck about that because look, what I think is funny, or maybe it works in rehearsal or maybe it works um, in your head or at a table read, you get on the day and something's tripping something up or we got to move, move the location inside. So something doesn't work. And now the whole scene falls flat over one fucking line, which mm-hmm. is stupid. Right. And I know a bunch, I know, and I used to be somewhat that way when I was younger of being really stubborn of, and it's just no good. And, um, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if, if, if no one cares what they're saying in a lot of ways, they care how they're feeling, you know, what they're putting out, what they're, you know, and, and that's what the audience cares about. Yeah. They don't remember. I mean, yeah, okay. There might be a couple of lines here and there, obviously in great movies and, and whatever, but by and large, it's, it's about feeling. And, and, um, yeah, so, so we did a good bit of improv, um, but it was structured. It was very structured improv, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, and I, and you know, it's honestly challenging the way, the way I might look at films moving forward, my own projects. You know, I, um, I'm much more confident in not rehearsing now than I was, you know, before this, not to say I would do that, but you know, uh, so, cause there is, this, there's a lot of friends I know that, and a lot of famous filmmakers that don't rehearse at all, you know, and are, yeah. you know, I want to keep it fresh, but you know, we, we, it worked for us. It worked. This story lent itself to improv. I had the talent that I felt very, very confident giving them that rope. And I think in turn that gave them a lot of confidence in me um, to make sure that it was like, okay, we can play, but then we got to like move it back into, you know, we still got to get through that door at the end of the scene. Yeah. You got to get back to the point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, that leads into it's, there's a lot of standout performances in this, but you got to ask how exciting was it to be um, directing Bruce Dern, you know, cause he's such a legend and, did you pick up any you know, any advice from him or wise words? Phil, and I say this with no, um, with all, I learned more in two days with him on set than I've learned in 20 years of storytelling. Film. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Um, when he, so he was the second one to come on board, as I mentioned, and he calls me up as a Sunday night. <clears throat> I'm sitting on my couch behind me here and with my wife and we're watching, uh, football game American football game mm-hmm. and um my phone rings and I'm like I'm pretty sure it's Bruce Dern you know I, I should probably pick up that phone you know <laughs> and uh and he calls and the first thing he says is like Paolo Paolo wow, Bruce Dern and I'm like holy shit you know and I don't get in there you know but like I'm like fuck you know and he's like we got to talk about that last scene and um I won't give the scene away to your audience but you know the, the uh as the credits are rolling that that, yeah, that yeah. scene and, yeah, yeah. and so and that like I might th- there's a lump my throat and he's like i fucking love it that's fucking hilarious and da 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 and off we went and and we talked for two hours and when i when i got done i had literally a tablet full of notes he's talking about working with kazan talking about working with hitchcock tarantino he had just got off it was like it was a master class and and when we got to set you know here's a guy who's 84 years old with a broken hip and we shot i think almost 20 pages with him in two days Wow. And, and we, the one bar scene when they kind of, when they kind of set up that whole bet and it's, and, um, you know, we had so many, we had, it was a long scene. I think it was like a six pager. And so we had, we were going to block them out. And I was like, look, Bruce, I'm going to shoot you out if you want. And you can go relax, you know, whatever. And he pulled me aside and he goes, listen. Um, and he tells me about his very first acting gig. And he was, you know, some bullshit role. And I forget, I forget who the, um, I think it was Kazan film, but I forget who the star was and the star rolled on him. So he had no one to run his lines with. 
And he promised himself he would never do that to any other actor ever. And he didn't. He fucking sat with us the entire time as we ripped through around the bar for everyone's. And that's the kind of guy he is. He knew everyone's. Look, he's famous for for his Dernsies and giving people his, you know, his his zingers. And he did that for sure um, with us, which was great. But but he also knew like he got he just he's such a fucking pro. And I mean, he had everyone from Jeremy on down, like literally eating out of the palm of his hands. And um, it was just amazing. It was an amazing experience. He came on. Last thing I'll say about him, because it's really important for for my film. He came on, I think him and Jack came on days four and five of week one. And I was shitting myself. You know, I'm like, no, guys, we got to bring it. Can we get through one week and then bring some, you know, bring on, you know, Dern and, and everything? And they're like, no, this is what it has to be schedule wise. Okay. And, um, and he, you know, after those two days, there, look, Jeremy helped set a tone early, but Bruce comes on and the whole thing just went like this and you could see it. I could see it. You could feel it. Uh, the crew, everyone was like, Oh shit. Like we, this is, you know, this maybe could be a better than a, you know, low budget junkie. And you know what I mean? And, 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 uh, you know, for that, I'll be forever grateful. He, I, I would go into his trailer, um, you know, you know, after wise, and he would, you know, he's a tremendous storyteller. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he would, you know, some stuff, I'll, it'll stay with me, but he gave me a lot of advice and, and not just advice, advice specifically on like how to move, how to navigate through the rest of the shoot. Yeah. Um, and he was tremendous. What a, what a, what a godsend, what a I fucking mean, godsend and, and, a, and a bunch of fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was going to say, and of course, Ra- raging bulls, Kathy Moriarty. I mean, speaking of acting royalty, <laughs> <laughs> She's another one who is just, I mean, just like, she's such a doll. Like she's such, she's just great. And I mean, again, all these other pros, boom, know my lines. I got it. I'm going to give you a couple of different things. You tell me. And it's like, look, a good film, a, a good, a smart director knows when to get the fuck out of the way. Right. Right. Um, you know what you want to do. Make sure you get what you need to get. Give them a little bit of leash. But when you have players um, get the fuck out of their way and let them do what they do. And she was one of them as well. And just, just, I mean, just so, you know, just like Dern, Bruce, the most generous, most generous actor I've ever met. And, and Kathy as well was game, you know, game. Yeah. I mean, some of these scenes, right. The scene with Jeremy and, and Kathy when the mace and everything like that's, you know, <laughs> maybe that's not for, for everyone or, you know, and, and Dern at the end and they were total gamers. Um, they were total gamers and they bought in and because of, and she, you know, because she bought in, like she, like to me, it was so important. The generational aspects of this neighborhood were always so important for me. So, so Jack McGee, the dad and coach and that, that, and Kathy on one, um, one generation and then Jeremy and, and Taryn and all the boys in that generation. And then the young kids, yeah. That we come back around again. And it was so why it was so vitally important for me to show them as children and then bring it around again where the officer has a kid playing around. And it's just like the cyclical kind of thing. Um, so, you know, with Kathy and those guys, it was really important that we didn't just have um, that we gave them a little bit of meat, you know, like yeah. a little bit of, yeah. of, of something, you know. Yeah. And that that so. that scene in particular, certainly the, the, the Mace scene that we're talking about absolutely had me on the floor laughing um certainly i think phil and i both grew up with that that kind of comedy yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah, though, yeah. Though, and speaking of those kind of visual gags yeah the 
and this is more more, more to you and, and what you brought certainly out of, out of the project in terms of that that tone and that humor but the unexpectedly amazing fucking assholes match cut uh, <laughs> from the young mick to the grown-up version of course played by jeremy piven on, on the massage table had yeah. been absolute fits of laughter. So, how did that come about? Was that something in the edit, or was that something on the day? No, it was on the page. It was on the page. Right. It was on the page. I'd always wanted to do a match cut because I wanted to. I wanted to make sure it was pretty obvious that that these this kid who was just getting hit with a you know a condom balloon, which is <laughs> as absurd. Which, by the way, actually, I watched that happen as a child. So that is something from my childhood uh, to show you how disgusting my neighborhood was. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but, but, um, but, uh, it was important for me to show, like, what's the easiest way to show that, okay, this guy is this kid, you know, but then there was, it was this opportunity to do something like, you know, to, to throw a little bit of humor in there, you know, but so that was, that was scripted. And, um, yeah, it's one of my favorite, like, it's one of my favorite, look, I think it, it helps to <clears throat> having that sweetness in with that ridiculously, like disgusting kind of humor to me was like, I, it was if that scene doesn't land with you, then you're probably not going to like my, this movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there's the love interest is kind of, I think established or it's a little sweet, you know, and then, and then it's, it's, it gets broken. You know, his first kiss gets broken up by that, you know, by that type in that type of way is absurd. So, but to me, that's a, that's a bigger metaphor for the entire film of marrying the kind of absurd, crude, crass comedy with, with a really heartfelt kind of ode to neighborhoods, you know? Yeah. So, definitely. and also the authenticity again, like, you know, um, that's the kind of shit that happens. Pe- mm-hmm. Kids are gross, man, you know? And, <laughs> and so are adults, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're humans are fucking gross. You know? <laughs> I think, I so. think that brings me nicely on to my next point actually. And that's that, you know, I love the way the film looks. I, I, I like the, the cuts to, to daily life you know, between mm. the main scenes, you know, you mm. get little snippets of the kids playing mm. in the street or, you know, me mm. little mm-hmm. shits or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, and you've also got the cuts to people just chatting and having a drink, like leaning up against the wall, drinking out of the brown paper bag. And, you know, just that sort yeah. of daily, yeah, the feel of the city of the town, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. I especially loved one that stuck out in my mind was the, the wide shot of um, Ali and Mick when they're walking out of the, like the fairground arcade place. Uh, eating the ice cream and you've got like oh yes 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 really wide a scene with like the the pavilion building type thing and that 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 was such a nice looking shot i I really like that because it was just a really cool looking um you know building it almost didn't make it almost didn't make the final cut it was going to break my heart you know there's a cut of this film that's that's a bit shorter that i really wanted to go with actually but it would have came at the expense of that sequence okay and it was one that was probably my favorite shot in the film visually yeah um that's that's in uh that's in bruce springsteen's uh that's in asbury park that is um the car the former carousel now it's a um it's like an art you know it's a good art gallery but it's right on the beach you know and it's in yeah it's in asbury park and um yeah, it's a gorgeous, I mean, it's just a gorgeous building, but it, it, the patina, there was a lot of color kind of things I really liked about it too. And again, yeah. this like sweet, I'm glad we did keep it ultimately because a sweet moment between basically the guys just getting fucked up, you know, um, yeah. was important for, for their relationship, you know, and just, you know, um, you know, they're not running off and getting married the next day, but it was important to show them kind of just reconnecting, you know, in a very kind of really innocent, sweet way. Um, you know, so, but yeah, to your point with B-roll, like I struggle with B-roll in general in terms of, for me, I I don't, I hate even the term B-roll because it's not B-roll. It's fucking really important. 
Um, you know what I mean? It should be a, it's all a role in my eyes, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. but you know, coming from a world of, um, you know, again, this is kind of more filmmaker talk, more, more film, you know, like my storytelling talk, not necessarily audience needs to pick up on this, but you know, this story had a lot of, there was an, there was a subtle neo, I love neorealism in general, um, especially as it relates to old Italian films. But most of my, most of the stories I'm interested in are working class stories. And, and so it was really like, you know, literally running, I just run around, I just want to fucking find an old lady pushing a cart down a street full of groceries. That's all I want. Or yeah. kids tossing a basket. That's what I want. I don't want just, you know, <clears throat> you know, tattered, this was written in the script, you know, tattered Irish flags or American flags, mm-hmm. like, you know, rusted pools or rusted aluminum fences and, you know, just real daily life. Um, Beachfront so, properties yes. on the Jersey Shore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, but so, you know, I think it's important. I think it's also important to show this, um, what you show when you're not showing your characters is in a lot of ways as important as when you are, because yeah, oftentimes it's a segue. It's a, it's a, you know, a, t- a, a breath for the audience, but w- they're still, they're still, you know, they're receiving that image, you know? So it's, um, to me, they're, they're not to be wasted. And, and if they can advance the story and in our case, it was, you know, just pound them with the neighborhood, you know? And, and, yeah. and, all, and a lot of also like, usually like kind of it helped with, I had a fantastic composer as well. And John Natchez, who when crafting the score, like the moments of, lightheartedness, you know, kind of brighten it up a little mm-hmm. bit so that it's, you know, that it's kind of, it doesn't take itself too seriously. This isn't, you know, this isn't a deep dive in the gentrification. This isn't a drama at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. And, so. and, and kind of, kind of taking a, a kind of step away from that and maybe taking more of a deep dive into you as a writer and a director. Yeah. Um, obviously a key, a key part of why the Movie Mouth podcast exists is because we like to promote the word about how to become a filmmaker, um, whichever capacity that, that may be in. Can you tell us a little bit more about your your background, um, how you got into directing, producing, writing, and also any advice for the listeners out there who are looking to get into the industry in in some capacity? Yeah, well, let me give them, let me give the advice straight off so that uh, they don't have to bother listening to me ramble for the next three <laughs> minutes about everything else. Uh, just fucking do it, man. You know, just do it. There really, I don't want to say there's no excuses because the film industry has many barriers deliberately put up. Um, you know, and, it, and it's a rich, I say it all the time, it's a rich kid's game. And I come from a, you know, relatively poor background. Uh, it's like the ice hockey of, of the arts, you know, like soccer, why soccer is so, uh, you know, played around the world is because you can roll up two fucking socks and kick it around any place in the world and call it soccer or football, you know? Yeah. And, and with, um, you know, ice hockey or something, you need all of this equipment, you need ice. It's just a much more expensive. So the barriers, are, the, the, there's barriers to entry. Filmmaking is very similar in the sense that it's very expensive. You know, when I did poetry, I could write poetry on the back of a bar napkin and it's done. I could do it as spoken word to you guys or somewhere at the bar and it's done and it's over. I would pick up my guitar, I could fuck around on the piano and it's done. You write a screenplay and it's tip of the iceberg. It's just a blueprint. You got to do it. It's, it's just such a big, so it could be very intimidating, but I came up through the dawn of the digital revolution, which started to make things easier, right? And 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 now even more so, you know, you grab your phone and people can make and people do, Sean Baker, whoever, people make great phone films on their fucking iPhones. Yeah. Um, so you know, in one sense there's no excuse. Look, you're get out and do. 
filmmaking especially is a world that is, um, you know, it's, it's, you can only learn so much in the book. You can only learn so much in the, in the, um, in the classroom, right? I think it's a, it's a, it's a medium that you got, you learn by doing, by making mistakes, getting up and, and trying it again. Um, yeah. and so, you know, that, that would be the advice though. Get out and do it and get, get the fuck around, man. Fuck around with your friends, fuck around with your kids, put yeah. uh, an army man together, just play, you know? And, um, and you know, eventually you, you'll learn more and, and, you know, maybe you get lucky and you get, you know, whatever. And then things kind of pop out, but like, usually just like anything else, I do think cream kind of rises to the top. Like if you're persistent, that's the other thing I'd say. You got to be persistent in America, especially if you're in it for fame, you're fucked from jump, you know? And I, I can't tell you how many kids I, you know, how many young adults I knew, um, that either went to, you know, much more prodigious, uh, prodigious film schools than me that burn out after a year or two, because they thought they were going to go to LA, sell their first fucking script, you know, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and be, you know, walking the red carpet. And that's just not the case. So you got to love it, man. You got to really love it. And if, you got to be prepared, like whatever that lifestyle, like I say to people all the time and I, we started, I was mentioning concerts before we got on. I started my company as a, in college as a way to make movies and not knowing shit about anything. Really. I, I had taken, you know, I had gotten a camcorder when I was in high school and I would, you know, just literally run in the streets and with a high eight camera and get my friends and we'd make little dumb short films and edit them in camera. And that would be that. And, and, um, you know, I went to school for political science and creative writing and then went to, uh, Pittsburgh filmmakers, which is a subsidiary of the university of Pittsburgh and took some editing classes and screenwriting classes, but I didn't go to NYU I, we couldn't afford it, you know? And, and, um, so it wasn't on my, you know, just wasn't something I, I could do, but what I could do was, okay, I got out of college. I could wait tables. I could start my company up. We started doing parties in warehouses in West Philly to pay the bills and, and basically kind of finance our own projects, you know, that, and, and then look, that's not, that lifestyle is not for everyone either, but you know, I was willing, my partner, my business partner at the time, Giovanni, we were willing to eat, literally eat rice and beans and live in a fucking one bedroom flat, mm-hmm. you know, to get it because we loved it that much. And, yeah. um, I, I do think there's a level of, I think persistence kind of trumps a lot of, uh, I don't say trumps talent, but it, it really goes a long way. And so you got to really want it, man. Like you, you do, and it, or it's not going to, cause another look, ultimately I think at some point it'll happen. It just, it took me a long time to realize it's not going to happen on my time. It happens on what I like to call rich guys time. You know, it's, it's, <clears throat> it, it's when they, you know, the money rules everything. So when they say, so, you know, um, you got to prepare yourself for that mm. mentally and, and otherwise. And, you know, but that's, to me, that's, um, you know, if, if that, if it's in you, it's in you, you know, and then you'll know, cause it'll come naturally. That's all you want to do, you know, yeah. whatever that is, doctor or filmmaker or whatever, you know? Yeah. So great answer. Um, so I think, you know, what's, what's next for you? I see that you've, um, looking at your IMDb page, you've got a, a film in pre-production at the moment. Um, the winemaker's son. Tell yeah, us a bit about yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So the winemaker's son is a, um, it's a whimsical folktale, uh, about a little boy who drinks homemade wine on his grandmother's deathbed in rural Italy. And, um, he gets special powers as an adult. He's living in the States and kind of living the fast life. And, and, um, he's an illustrator 
<clears throat> and his fa- he's estranged from his father who lives in Italy, and he decides to go back on vacation and and try to reconnect with him. And while he's there, he kind of you know rekindles a, a you know a childhood uh, kind of thing, not unlike Last Call a little bit, and and ultimately try to reconnect with his dad who also falls ill, and unlike his grandmother, is very afraid of death. So our hero has to create this um, illustrated roadmap to the afterlife to help him pass through. So I had written it about uh, 12 years ago after my father died, um, kind of as an an ode to uh, my family, specifically my mother's family, but, um, and how, and how like kind of I grew up and, 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 uh, and my love for Italian cinema and neorealism. And I think really these, again, working class stories and stories of, you know, coming to find out a lot of stories of like, a lot of family stories, you know, and like father, son or, or whatever. Uh, but it's a really fun project somewhere between like a big night and big fish. Um, if you, if you know those films and, uh, you know, but very much so steeped in that Italian kind of like a lot of heart and a lot of, hopefully a lot of comedy, you know, but, um, yeah, it's a really special project. I'm really, I'm super, I'm, I'm really, really excited about that one. And, um, that was one, obviously like every film long gestating and, we had got to go over and shoot a trailer, a teaser a couple of years ago to raise some money. And, and, um, and then last call came together. And now it looks like if everything goes well with, uh, you know, the rest of our financing and with COVID, you know, uh, easing up that we should be back there um, later this summer, early fall. Well, yeah, so. and, of, and of course, moving location from upper Derby, Pennsylvania to rural Italy can't be a, <laughs> yeah. can't be a yeah, bad thing. It's a little, you know, it's funny because we shot the teaser, we shot the teaser in parts of Sicily and then in, 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 in um, Umbria and Lazio on the border. I don't know how familiar you sure. are with Italy, but yep. uh, this part is the most landlocked. Where we're shooting is a medieval town. And ironically, it's a, uh, it's a certified slow city. So I don't know if you're familiar with slow cities, but it just, another stroke of luck, like we've gotten in last call a million times. And sometimes you build your own luck and sometimes it just hit you in the back of the head like a two by four, right? But this town, 150 people, medieval town, is a certified slow city. One of only, I don't know how many, a couple dozen in the world or maybe a hundred, I don't know, not many. And uh, it has to be, you know, like farm to table, a certain, the food has to be a certain distance or less uh, from, you know, to your table or whatever. And so, um, which is great for my story because I have this guy who needs to learn to kind of slow down and then literally goes into a slow city and, you know, for me, with, with especially Italian cinema, Italian-American cinema, there's a lot of caricature in Italian-American cinema and uh, obviously great mafia movies. But it's always either mafioso or, you know, mamma mia, you know, pizzeria kind of bullshit. And, and um, I didn't grow up that way at all. You know, I grew up with families speaking Italian, uh, respecting their food, growing whatever they could, like doing with in a very Italian way, doing the best uh, you can with what you have. Right. And it's a very, I mean, very much an Italian way of life and Italian, especially Italian cooking, um, you know, and you give an old Italian nonna three, you know, three ingredients and she'll cook you the best meal of your life and very different from the French and other, and other kind of cuisines. But so for me, it's like, I can't, like, there's a bit of food porn that I'm really excited about, like getting into with this project and, you know, a kind of slow, a totally different project than last call in terms of, uh, visually and, and, you know, just this whole waltz and. You know, I, I, the, the connection would probably be they're both probably, you know, heart really kind of heartfelt type of things. But but the obviously the comedy is going to be much, much uh, 
much different. So, but yeah, it's, it's Italy is like one of those places where you almost have to purposely dirty the frame up a little bit because anywhere you point a camera, it's just stunningly gorgeous, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, and yeah. yeah, it works for this film, but like, damn, every once in a while, I'm like, man, could we just not, does it have to be that? It's just impossibly beautiful, you know? But well, very so, yeah, so looking so, forward to seeing, to seeing the winemaker's son. Um, yeah, and you know, obviously we've been talking a little bit about food. It's just coming up to, well, after lunchtime, I haven't had anything to eat. I don't know about you, but right. we'll, no, we'll yeah. let you, we'll let you go grab some food. And, uh, but that. we would like to, to, to thank you, uh, Paolo Pilati for joining the movie mouth podcast. A pleasure was all mine guys. I thank you so much. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right, guys. Such a great guy. Incredible insights. What did uh, did you enjoy that one, Phil? Loved it. Yeah, really nice guy. And um, yeah, it was just it was just really cool to hear his sort of. The, I like it when we get to sort of you know watch a film and then actually ask the person involved with making it uh, the stuff we really want to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was really good. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the film as well. Yeah, I think he was a very gen- he's a very genuine guy. He the the things that he talked about, you could tell he made this movie. No, no one else could have made this movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, he lived it, yeah. he breathed it, he knew it, you know. Um, and I agree. I think that, you know, there were some mixed reviews online for this movie, which really surprised me. I genuinely don't, don't understand why. I laughed my ass off for most of this. And despite yeah. having, I was having a sober week, it really, because the whole movie is basically set, as he said, you know, in bars and, and you know, these, these buckets in all the different towns. I really just wanted to sit in a pub with you, you know, and our other friends, uh, just shoot the shit. You know, it was that kind yeah, of movie. Um, and there, there are people, there, there are people, and and you know, even though I don't really know this part of Pennsylvania, I knew the characters. You know, they were my friends, they were my family, yeah. they were people that I grew up around or with. You know, and I don't think you'll find a more genuine movie this year. It reminded me a lot of those there's really barbed early John Favreau and Vince Vaughn indies where they're throwing back exchanges and there's a real mythology about their friendship. Yeah. Um, or even the first Wes Anderson movie, Bottle Rocket, which had a lot of those real moments that Phil called out that you called out on the, in the interview where you saw like kids and people playing in the street and that kind of thing, just little physical comedy beats that were yeah. happening kind of almost off camera. Yeah. Um, that were portrayed just really well. Snapshots. Yeah. Yeah. You can check out the last call uh, video on demand, pretty much. You know anywhere you, where you where you where you view your content, um, starring at the aforementioned, you know Jeremy Piven from Entourage, uh, Ari Gold himself. So worth, I would say, worth a watch. And uh, you know, if you need to get in touch about where to find that, please do let us know. So let's jump into the reviews this week. We've got three reviews coming up. I'll start. I'm going to start it off with the most recent release. That yes. is. Yes. A Quiet Place Part 2, the much-delayed horror movie sequel, which was originally slated for release during the first month of the global coronavirus pandemic and was subsequently put on hold. Thankfully, shirking the watch-at-home release and Netflix or an Amazon Prime could afford it, this is a movie that has to be seen in cinemas. So, let me bring you up to speed. Have you seen the first one, Phil? No. So this follows on. <laughs> Sorry about that. Continue. Well, I'm not going to ruin the first movie, but I'll just bring no. you up to where we're at. So this, this follows on from A Quiet Place Part 1. Following the deadly events at their home, 
the Abbott family must now face the terrors of the outside world as they continue to fight for survival in silence. Forced to venture into the unknown, they quickly realize that the creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats that lurk beyond the sand path. So basically, first movie, we find out we have a family in a small town in America somewhere, and basically anything that makes a noise attracts these creatures to them. Oh so, so they have to be very, very quiet. Everybody in the planet on the planet has to be quiet. All these creatures just come out of nowhere and they, they kill you. They rip you apart. That okay? sucks. It does. This comes from actor-director John Krasinski. Yes, Jim Halpert from US TV's The Office. And it stars his actual wife, Emily Blunt. After the ending of the first movie, which I shall not spoil, um, this features an amazing prequel prologue set in the town moments before the invasion first arrives on Earth. Something we didn't see in the original, as it kind of just drops you like in the middle of this chaos, this town, and they're kind of looking for medication and food and things like that. And you don't really know why they're being quiet. It kind of unravels the, the plot that way. From here, we jump forward to the main plot, which follows in the, the immediate aftermath of the first film. And we go on an adventure with the Abbott family as they look for a quiet place to see out the invasion. John Krasinski, so well known for his physical comedies and wry looks to the camera in The Office, um, he directs an almost faultless horror movie. All physical performances and macho camera movements, as the characters essentially have to stay quiet, there are no shouts of run or they're behind you or help me or anything. It's just people in turmoil dealing with the deadly threat while having to motion or run silently through whichever landscape or building that they find themselves in. Um, Emily Blunt is again superb as Evelyn Abbott, but it's Millicent Simmons as hearing impaired daughter Reagan who steals the show here buddied up with Peaky Blinder himself, Killian Murphy in a surprising role for him as Emmett, playing a very macho, divided and at fault and yet, you know, at odds with his own kind of personality and selfishness. A real joy to watch as this character deals with getting himself out of the way and making himself about other people. It's almost like, you remember he played that shell-shocked soldier in Dunkirk, mm. selfish, yeah. you know, guy, you know, obviously going through a, a horrific time. But it's almost like that character kind of gets vindication in this in this role. Right. Um, and especially during an excellent set piece involving a river dock at nighttime. A great scene. Coming off the back of the first movie, which was a really nice surprise of a horror movie. Um, and if you wanted to, you know, I would say critique this, you could say it doesn't so much up the stakes as just improve on a working formula that worked in the first movie. Um Although this offers little new in terms of what's gone before, it does deliver an essential horror movie with heart, stakes, and actual scares that will leave you jumping out of your cinema seat and trying to quieten down your reactions should they, or them, hear you. An essential movie to go back to the movie theatre or cinema to watch. Go see it. A Quiet Place Part 2. Everywhere now. That sounds really Thumbs cool. up. It is a really good one now. Watch the first one. Yeah, I didn't watch really the first it one. About, it's I'm brilliant. Honest. It's brilliant. Best for me. Best horror movie the last five years. Easy. Cool. I'm up for that. And speaking of horror, Phil, Ooh. tell us about Army of the Dead. Army of the Dead. The Dead. Yes. Army. So, uh, Zack Snyder returns to the zombie realm 
um, for the first time since 2004's Dawn of the Dead remake, which uh, I mostly enjoyed. It was pretty well received, wasn't it? That I mean, there was a lot of sort of not so good ones, but yeah, I think I that did it. pretty well. I, yeah, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Amazingly but, shot, but I love the original as well. But yeah, this yeah, but you know, it, it was a pretty good remake. It it was. Mm-hmm. Um, we spoke about the trailer for this a while back. Um, and I must say, I was really looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Um, this looked like right up my alley because um, I like me a good zombie apocalypse movie. Uh, <laughs> and when you see that it's basically sort of Dawn of the Dead crossed with Ocean's Eleven, um, <laughs> it looked like it was going to be a lot of fun. Run and hide. <laughs> Run and hide from the zombies, Mr. Um, Ocean. So, yeah, it looked like it was going to be a lot of fun. But was I wrong, Miles? Uh, well... We'll get to that a bit later on. Ooh. Um, so as we know, you know, Snyder's mostly been in the news for the recent Justice League cut. But with this movie, um, I think Netflix have given him both, you know, director and writing roles to give him sort of the power to realise the vision that he had for it. Um, uh, as always, this is going to be a spoiler-free review because there's a lot to spoil in this film if we weren't careful. Uh, so it will make some of my praises and criticisms a little bit hard to discuss, but I'll do my best. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, we get pretty much straight into the action. Um, it's a plot that couldn't be much more simple. There's a group of mercenaries. They race against the clock to enter a walled-off, zombie-ridden Las Vegas uh break into a casino vault uh, and then try to get out again with the cash. Um, Sounds simple, yet it still manages to be two and a half hours long. Um, It is long. Which is a, yeah, this is one criticism. It's a bit too long. Um, So Dave Bautista plays the absolute unit of a man and the lead role of Scott Ward. Uh, He has the most of the backstory I suppose as a character um, but it's not really saying much to be honest uh, most of the cast to this sort of feels like it sort of feel like they're there to make up the numbers you know mm. a bit of bit of mm. fodder in that sort of way um, the character development's pretty much non-existent for a lot of the characters in it uh, but then you know you've got to tell yourself you are watching like a sort of half fun zombie film anyway Um but it's not to say there aren't good performances in it. I particularly enjoyed uh, Amari Hardwick's uh, Vanderhoe, or Vanderhoe, sorry. He was good. Uh, I really like that. And um, Tig Notaro as the crazy helicopter pilot. Yeah. Um, uh, but actually, fun side note on that, and I don't know if you know about this, but Tig Notaro was actually a replacement uh, for the... Uh, actor that was playing her role originally oh and okay so you don't know this right so this blew my mind so apart from one half day of filming on a set which is a scene you know no spoiler but it's where she's with one hour one other character and they walk out onto a roof to to a helicopter yeah apart from one half day of filming on that set she's never met anyone else in the film like (laughs) she she watched the film complete before she was in it and then they replaced her on all green screen performances and put her into it wow yeah i didn't even notice that 
Yeah. No, you, you don't know. I didn't know until I read it after. Um, I, I'm glad I didn't know that before. Like I've watched the scenes again since just to see if mm. I could tell, but you can't really. It's really no. cleverly done. Um, so that was that was crazy. Who did they replace? I don't know. <laughs> but she was good at it really good mm, um, she was yeah she was you know played a sort of kick-ass helicopter yeah very 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 pilot. aliens like like one of the aliens colonial yeah. marines or something like you know, speaking attitude. of which there's a bit of a comparison to be made there like with the group of people like especially with one of them wearing like a red like a, a latino wearing like a red headband yeah and kicking ass like it, it's a lot of Alien comparison, I think, would you be said in this film? Mm, mm. Um, Even the gun anyway. sounds, actually, I thought. Did you? If you, yeah, agree, a lot of the guns are a bit the, like the that. The rifles yeah. they made, they made yeah. sound very aliens like pulse rifle, the coolest yes. gun sound ever. Um, but all of that aside, there are some really good, uh, really good visuals in it. I think there were some really cool sort of special effects scenes. A uh, lot of good CGI on display. Um, the sets and the backdrops look really like gritty and realistic for the most part. Um, and you can see where the pretty big budget, I think it was around 90 million, the budget for this $90 million. You can see where a lot of the budget went on, on it. Um, so yeah, it, it looks great. And I think, you know, a lot of the zombie takedowns and stuff are really satisfying. Um, speaking of zombies, <laughs> this particular bunch are more intelligent and nimble than most we have seen before. Apart mm. from maybe those in um, Twenty Eight Days Later, yeah, which are the terrifyingly, sprinters. terrifyingly fast. Yeah, it's like the worst you could ever have is a, a fast sprinting, sprinting zombie. zombie. Yeah, yeah, and they've got a bit of that plus a bit of nous about them as well in this film. So they're pro- maybe they're not quite as scary, but still, maybe they should be. Um, and they communicate with like really horrible screeches and growls, like really animalistic sort of like growls, mm. don't they? Mm. And they, that sounds awesome. Like the audio production, it's really good for that, for those bits. Um, I mean, as you've seen in the trailer, there's even a zombie tiger, uh, which is pretty cool as well. Um, I think the main issue I've got with the film is there's some pretty huge plot holes. Uh, and what seems to be an like one gigantic pointless side quest that has no bearing <laughs> with anything at all and with zero explanation at the end of the film. Um, so that sort of put a bit of a damper on it for me. Um, I, I just found it a bit weird, to be honest, that it was something mm. that they'd focused on so much was just like ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I think it's great to see films of this magnitude being really released on Netflix. Um, obviously, you know, it'd be good to see it in the cinema as well, but you know, it's nice to, to see, see that kind of thing at home. Uh, it's an invent is it mostly inventive spin on the, on the zombie genre. And although I found it, as I said before, a bit too long, um, and sometimes it seemed to take itself a little bit too seriously. Like there wasn't, there, there's comedy in it. But sometimes it felt like they were really going for like gut punches that like weren't there, you know. Um, I think it's, yeah. it's but it's still um, it's still enjoyable. One you can just you know it's one of those films you can just sit and watch. You don't have to think about it too much. So yeah, if you fancy giving it a go, it's available to stream on Netflix and also at cinemas now. 
Uh, what did oh, you is think? It, is it the cinema as well, is it? I believe so, yeah. It's, um, I mean, I'll be honest, I tried to watch it three times. I watched it in three or four different, I, I couldn't get into it. Right. To be honest, I couldn't get into it. I, I just, it was bereft of uh, the type of comedy that I think these films should be kind of peppered with. Yeah. Um, took itself, like you said, too seriously. So I, I most, I'm, I disagree. I agree with everything that you said. Um, I didn't really enjoy it as a film. And no. I think I'm in a minority there, but I just found it a bit meh. Yeah. I think $90 million on a zombie movie. And yeah. it's not I, had the best reception. I don't really remember anything about it. Was that? It hasn't had the best reception from what I've read, like reviews wise and stuff. It hasn't right. done that well. I think there's been a weird thing about dead pixels in it as well, which have been sending people crazy thinking that there's something wrong with their TV, but apparently it's on the footage. <laughs> It's like dead mm. pixels in the footage. And stuff. Oh, and uh, it, uh, that's a good point. He does this weird focus pull in like so many scenes. It's like the background's out of focus, and then what what he's focusing on is there, and then it kind of drifts out of focus. Yeah, really, uh, really weird. Really weird. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to shit all over this movie because obviously there's a lot of professionalism that's gone into it, and you know. Oh, there's a lot um, of things I liked about it as well. But yeah, quite a yeah. I I agree. I just it left me feeling very excuse the pun cold um and you know i didn't just didn't get into it just couldn't get into it i did watch it with a very small dog though who was uh, i was looking after and she was going fucking mental every time like the zombies made a noise like <laughs> yeah she'd be like, <laughs> just, like freak it out so had to keep turning the TV down. yeah but um Brilliant. so yeah so th- i guess it was kind of a thumbs up from joey the dog thumbs up from you so oh, yeah thumbs down kind of middling thumbs a middle thumbs from you middle thumbs <laughs> middle thumbs thumb. and a thumb i would say a thumbs down from me yeah that's fair yes so mining other depths let's go to disney shall we yes yeah. yay it's the house of mouse good old walt disney and his fun things oh and boy let's... oh boy oh golly Hey, Minnie. So, and here we have a 101 Dalmatians prequel. Mm. None other than Cruella. And this is Disney, who have launched yet another live-action reboot, remake, or rejigging of their famous animation properties. And here we have Emma Stone portraying Estella. Estella! A young, misguided girl who rebels at every opportunity, left alone and fending for herself as a petty thief on the streets of 60s and 70s London. We follow Estella as she begins to walk in the footsteps of the aloof and mysterious fashion designer, the Baroness, played here by the amazing Emma Thompson. You could say this is Cruella Begins. (laughs) This is really wonderfully directed by Craig Gillespie, whose recent movie starring Margot Robbie as Tonya Harding, um, I, Tonya, mind similar anti-hero depths with a strong female female lead. The London this movie's based in is almost a character. It's all route master, double-decker buses, old cars, Bobby's on the beat, and an incredibly groovy 60s and 70s soundtrack that I loved. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. baby. Do, 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 do. Oh, that's, our, that's our podcast theme tune. It should theme be, our podcast theme tune should be in this movie. Yeah. Your knees will be tapping away. Emma Stone is really great in this role. 
kind of a kind of Harley Harley Quinn type character who is another strong female anti-hero who's tearing up the rule book at the moment. Um, Emma Stone's American, obviously, but her English accent only slips occasionally. The odd time, weirdly, she says the word psycho. It's like, psycho, psycho. <laughs> psycho. Um, she says it loads as well. I'm not some kind of psycho. Um, <laughs> but other than, that, other than that, she manages to be really likable, um, unlikable, nerdy, rebellious, and absolutely rock and fucking roll. Um, she also mines the dark moments really well, in particular a fountain side monologue towards the end of the movie, which will not leave a dry eye in the house. Emma Thompson also is deliciously vicious as the Baroness, a woman who would murder her own child if it meant focusing on her own designer label. This is not the happy-go-lucky, plucky and fun Disney. This movie represents very much a turn towards something darker that the House of Mouse only really reserved for the Touchstone and Buena Vista studio labels. There's a standout moment during a costume ball where a huge revelation during the Stooges classic, now I wanna be a dog, provides what at first appears to be the darkest moment of any Disney movie that you've ever seen. <laughs> right. Um, as I said, this movie is rock and fucking roll. I was surprised by this. It looks great. It flows nicely, although it's a little long at two hours 15. They possibly could have trimmed it down to something a little more punchier. But the effect isn't lost, and it's a triumph when compared to another potentially similar-looking movie with HBO Max's The Witches, a movie that we both liked. Yeah. Um, but this is a cut above. It's next level by comparison. Other shout-outs, great cinematography, a great ensemble cast featuring none other than phone jacker himself, Kai Van Novak. And an incredible orchestral score by Nicholas Brittel, who recently has composed Succession, the HBO TV show, which has an awesome score, and The Big Short. Uh, Cruella is available now in cinemas and to watch at home on Disney Plus's premium service, which is kind of $30 to download it here in the US. Um, so go see it at the cinema if you get the chance. Um, it's probably going to be cheaper and it's going to be a load of fun. I would probably say if you have young kids, Maybe it might be a little too dark, um, but certainly, you know, maybe the 12A audience, it's it's going to be perfect for, and it absolutely gets a recommendation from the Movie Mouth podcast. Cool. I've got some bad news for you, Phil. What's that? Do you want the good news or the bad news? Uh, good news. Let's start with the bad. So this uh, week, there isn't going to... that? This week, we are not going to include a video store corner section to our podcast. I knew about that. Oh, you did? Okay. No, I was telling the audience and using you as the vehicle in which I could portray that to uh, the right. audience. Why don't you give me the choice? Then? But the good news is, Phil, <laughs> yeah, we might on. as well tell the good news because you know what the good news is. No, I go on. You do it. I'm excited. This week is the 25th anniversary of a movie that connects Phil and I is one of our favorite movies, favorite action movies. God damn it, it's even the best Michael Bay movie. Yes, it's the 25th anniversary of The Rock, starring Nicolas Cage and the greatly departed Sean Connery. So Phil and I decided to create its own standalone special a video store corner section for the ages 
where myself, Phil, and sometime Movie Mouth contributor Sean Chrysanthu will be discussing that movie at length. And when I say at length, I'm talking at least an hour. We're going to be sitting down to do that this week. We'll be launching it in time for its anniversary, which was the June 7th release way, way back in 1996. Goodness gracious me. So that will be coming to the Movie Mouth podcast channel soon, um, probably within the next week. It will be up. We will we will obviously talk about it on our social media. Um, but before then, join us on the next Movie Mouth podcast slice of fun. And please follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts at, at Movie Mouth Podcast. Hit subscribe. And please do give us a nice five-star review. It's the only way we know that you actually like what we do and that there are people out there listening. So please do that. It would be hugely appreciated. And Phil, there's just one last thing to say, isn't there? Yeah. Go on, say it. No, you say it. Godspeed, Godspeed, Godspell. Who gives a shit? <laughs> bye bye. Bye, Phil. Bye. Bye. <laughs>